In a recent study, researchers at Florida State University set out to understand better what keeps our attention. Or maybe more so, what takes our attention away? And how do you measure the cost of that attention span? In order to understand what distracts us, what interrupts us, what takes our attention, they focus their efforts on notifications. That's right, those little things that pop up on your cell phone every now and then, a text, a call, an interruption, a notification on your iPhone or smartphone. What do notifications do to our attention? That's the question they were trying to ask. And so they got 212 participants to participate in their study. They broke them up into three groups, call, text, and control. Each participant was going to receive call interruptions, text interruptions, or no interruptions while sitting in a room alone with their cell phone. They used the sustained attention to response task, a series of prompts that forces you to ignore some things and pay attention to other things. And so the first group was given no interruptions. Another group interrupted with text messages throughout. The other group called on occasion. Turns out that the group who received texts made 23% more errors than the control group. While the group receiving phone calls made 28% more errors on the sustained attention response task than the rest of the control group. They discovered what we could probably have guessed had we all put our minds to it. That when your concentration is taken away from something, you're just not as good at it. When your attention is drawn away from what's right in front of you, you make more mistakes. When you're not paying attention, accidents happen. We started this sermon series some weeks ago, walking through the book of Hebrews. We've moved quickly so that it wouldn't last forever. Ironically enough, here in this last chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, the writer's going to sum up this letter at the very end by telling us, you know, I've been brief, so uh, please heed my instructions. Well, it's taken us weeks to walk through it. But we started weeks ago by taking as our theme those little verses right at the beginning of chapter 2. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. How shall we escape it if we ignore so great a salvation? And as we've gone along, we've watched as the letter to the Hebrews explained and explored how this new act of salvation in the person and work of Jesus Christ has changed the old covenant that God made with his people into a new and living covenant, that by his blood, by his death and resurrection, we are drawn into a relationship with God. And using many metaphors from covenant to sacrifice to priesthood, the writer of this letter has tried to help us pay attention to what has happened in human history on our behalf. And so coming to this last chapter of the book of Hebrews, I'd like for us to end where we began by calling ourselves to much greater attention to Jesus. Now the writer to the letter is going to use this 
as a bit of an announcement period. It's almost like worship isn't over. This letter isn't over until the sermon's done and somebody gets up to give the announcements. Well, there's a, a handful of announcements and we'll walk through what the writer wants to communicate to these early Christians here. And it, it will even sound a little bit familiar. But we're also wrapping up, summarizing this entire message, this body of work in this letter that has called us to pay attention. And when we do that, there are a few things here in this last chapter that will become a part of our lives and a few things that will not be a part of our lives. But all of it centers on whether or not we're looking to Jesus, focused, giving our attention to what is deserving. Mark Gelman writes a little story in his book called Does God Have a Big Toe? It's a stories of Jewish midrash, that old tradition of telling stories about stories in the Bible, maybe elaborating on them, taking some liberties to explore them creatively, you might say. He writes this about Exodus chapter 3. When God set out to pick a leader for the children of Israel, the most important quality God was looking for was patience. God wanted somebody who would not give up, no matter how bad things looked, no matter how much the people complained, no matter how long it took to get to the land of Israel, God wanted a patient person to be the leader. So God set out to make a patience test that could be used to find the right person for the job. Now the angels were always bothering God with ideas, and most of them were not very good, but God was patient, so God listened to all the angels' ideas for a patience test. Gabriel came forward with a ball of tangled string. Whoever has the patience to untangle this ball of string is our person for sure. God did not like this test because untying knots is just boring work and string untanglers are usually the kind of people who save rubber bands and that was not at all what God had in mind. Then Michael, the angel, flew forward with a little puzzle box. You had to twist it so that all the red squares were on one side and all the green on another and all the blue on another, all the yellow on another. Michael said, this is a great patience test. You have to figure out how to get all the same colors on the same sides. I'm still working on this one, so any person who can solve this puzzle is our person for sure. God sent Michael away after explaining that you did not need patience to solve puzzles as much as persistence. And God was convinced that some of the worst leaders had the most persistence. Then, of course, God had an idea that was the very best patience test of all. God caused a bush to start burning in the desert just near where some shepherds were pasturing their flocks. A few shepherds passed it and walked away. They didn't even notice that the bush was burning, but not burning up. Bushes are not special. And bushes on fire are not that special. So nobody took the time to sit long enough to watch the miracle happen. Moses, who had run away from the palace and become a shepherd, saw the bush and sat down on the ground and watched. Moses watched and watched and saw that the bush's leaves were burned off and the bush's branches were black, just like any ordinary burning bush. The only thing different about this burning bush was that it did not burn up. It just continued to burn and burn and the branches never fell down in a heap and the fire never went out. And Moses was the only one who waited long enough to notice. 
Moses tried to get to the other shepherds to come over and to watch the bush with him, but they all had better things to do. Moses also had better things to do, but he did not know it yet at the time. I wonder today, as we hear that story about Moses, fiction as it might be, would you notice Would you pause long enough to watch and to see the miracle happen? Or do you have better things to do? Because this is what I can tell you, that there is no escaping the presence of God. He is in all things and through all things, and by him all things are held together. Hebrews chapter 13 here in front of us says he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And for those of you who have professed belief in Jesus, faith in him, God's spirit dwells within you, leads and guides you and empowers you to do his work. So there is no shortage of miracles in your life. The question is, would you stop long enough to notice? Or is something else consuming so much of your attention that you don't have time to stop and watch the miracle happen. You see, we live in a day here in the midst of the information age when attention span is narrowing, it seems, by the day. You don't have to believe me to believe that's true. Researchers have studied all kinds of attention. The University of Denmark collected our global attention span by measuring a number of different sources. They looked at the past 40 years of movie ticket sales, of Google Books for the past 100 years, Twitter data from 2013 to 2016, Google Trends from 2010 to 2018, Reddit Trends, Wikipedia reading time. And what they found in a nutshell is that there are more things competing for our attention and less attention to go around. As one researcher put it, It seems that the allocated attention, time, and our collective minds has a certain size, but the cultural items competing for that attention have become more densely packed. In other words, the amount of things competing for your attention, the amount of content in our world is only increasing in volume, and our attention is exhausted for newness, even though it continues to be shorter in how much time it will give to one particular thing. And our urge for newness, which seems to only be growing, causes us to collectively switch between topics more regularly. As just one example, an internet trend that would last for 17 and a half hours in 2013 only lasts 11.9 hours in 2016. The cycle is moving faster, our attention span is getting shorter, and the amount of things competing for that attention is getting greater. And this study, while huge and maybe outside of your experience, points to what's true in your life too, and what the author of the Hebrews knows. There are a seemingly unlimited number of options for where you can focus and where you can look in your life and what you can give your attention to, and we have been pleading And we have been implored and challenged by this letter as we've gone along to not just put Jesus at the center of our life, but to pay attention to who he is and to what he's done and allow that to shape everything else. 
And as simple as this principle seems, the idea that followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, would make him the focus of our lives, make his kingdom work the center of our being, make his presence our guiding light. It seems rare in these days. I have to admit that I'm, I'm constantly baffled by the amount of attention people will give to things that are meaningless and the amount of meaningless things which continue to get attention. And, and not all distractions are bad or evil. Not all interruptions are terrible and no good. Some things need to interrupt us and shock us and to shake us into new places. But as your world continues to try to convince you that all kinds of things and causes are worth your attention, that you should be outraged or totally engulfed by this or that, that you should buy into this story or that one, you need to hear the writer of Hebrews remind us that there is a better word There are better lenses that we can use to see the world. There is a measuring stick by which we can measure all things we allow to have time and space and priority in our lives. And it comes to us by way of a man hanging on a cross. It announces its hope in our lives by virtue of a resurrection which brings life in the midst of death. And it's by the blood of Jesus that we have obtained an inheritance that we did not deserve. And person after person will simply pass by because they've seen bushes and they've seen burning bushes. But we are a people who have seen and have heard that what has been given to us in Jesus is in fact a miracle. And we've made it our aim to stop and to notice and to announce it to a world deeply in need of hope and salvation. And what will come of us, says Hebrews chapter 2, if we ignore so great a salvation? And for that reason, the writer to Hebrews begins this closing section of the letter, chapter 13, verse 1. And perhaps no better statement could begin the closing of this letter than to say, if you've been a recipient of this new covenant, if you found this Jesus, who's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, then you will, 13 verse 1, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. God's people are described again as a family, and love is to be the guiding force in our lives. The closing section continues, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. See, we're reminded that hospitality was a core principle of early believers. We learn again and again that care for one another was one of the reasons that the Christian faith grew in the first century. Rodney Stark in his little book, Rise of Christianity, teaches us that their their nursing of one another in the midst of illness, their care and concern for each other was one of the things that made Christians a more thriving and surviving group than those outside the faith. 
And it seems that that hospitality extended not just to brothers and sisters who believed, but even to strangers. And in this miracle of inviting the stranger in, the writer of Hebrews has the audacity to tell us that some people have even welcomed angels without knowing it. Now the kingdom of God becomes more alive to us when we show hospitality to strangers. And in chapter 13, verse 3, he turns to another challenge that the early church is facing. That prison was a, a real reality for them. That being imprisoned for their faith and persecution was something that was actually happening. And so they're to remember those who have been imprisoned for various reasons. Because they're being mistreated. And you ought to treat them as if you yourselves were suffering. Don't forget them. And verse 4, marriage should be honored by all and marriage the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And so there you have it. In this sum, summary section of the letter to Hebrews, we're hitting all the topics. Everything that could possibly get your attention and distract you from Jesus. We have fame, power, sex, money. They're all being thrown in here in one because they're all forces tugging at the hearts and minds of these people, drawing them away from Jesus. And so he's giving some final instructions. Here's how marriage and, and sexual Purity ought to be handled. Here's how money ought to be held in your lives and contentment ought to reign over the love of money. And here's how love for other people ought to drive you to welcome strangers and to remember those who have been taken away to prison and even remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you and imitate them. Chapter 13, verse 9 says, Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. The writer knows there are so many distractions. And I feel like every day the internet or the television provides us with one more distraction or conspiracy theory or wild idea. And it's amazing how quickly Christians will fall for them. We'll be distracted by our main focus, our main aim. It is good, says verse 9, for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. Not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now this may not be commonplace for your lives. Maybe the eating of ceremonial foods and ministers at the altar and tabernacle, what do these things have to do with us? But you hear the message that you were once a part of something that had significance. It had its own leaders and its own world and its own value system. But that's been turned upside down. And you've been handed a new faith in Jesus where your whole life and your whole world and all of your decisions are strengthened by His grace. That your hearts are carried by that faith. And we have a faith with an altar from which those who dispense other lies and deceitfulness and hate and foolishness simply have no place. So don't give these strange teachings and these overt lies and these pleas for your attention, more energy and focus than they deserve. 
Because Jesus has a better word to say and a better story for your life. And I don't know what it is that's distracting you or what forces pull at your attention. The temptations of sin or the narratives of this world or a 24-hour news cycle, fears about the future, anxieties about the past, relationships in your present, whatever they might be. There are so many forces which pull at who you are. And God continues to say again and again through Jesus, let me tell you who you are. Let me tell you who you belong to. Let me tell you about the God who is the same yesterday, who was in the midst of the old covenant, promising his people a way forward and leading them out of the wilderness and into the promised land and who has provided by giving himself a way for your future. Let me tell you about the Jesus who is the same today as he will be forever and how much you should follow him and how that will transform your life. And so Hebrews continues to wrap up this letter. Chapter 13, verse 11, The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore, For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. You see, we are resident aliens. We are temporary people in this passing world. And God has promised to make all things new. And so as we imitate Jesus, we live in this world as if we know about the world to come. That's the power of hope. We don't have an enduring city here. Do you treat this world like it will last forever? Like what you make with your hands will go with you somewhere? As if the most important kingdom in this world is the one you're building for yourself? Or have you discovered, as the second half of verse 14 reminds us, that we're looking for the city that is to come? Verse 15, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You know, just this week, I spent time here on our church campus with a whole host of people who were doing good and serving others. Let me paint a picture for you by just picking one day from this week, because I think it's about things that more people need to know about. The morning started with the the planning of a memorial service that will take place in our sanctuary. Congolese believers from all over our region hold an annual memorial service to remember the genocide that took place in their home country, causing them to flee I walked across our campus and and spoke briefly with the leaders of our ESL ministry, teachers sitting around tables with their computers, preparing for a semester's worth of English as a second language to immigrants to our city to help them better navigate this new world they find themselves in. And what are the teachers doing except reinventing the whole thing, which has been going for years by moving to a Zoom virtual format for the upcoming semester because of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. 
I left that meeting and, and relocated dozens and dozens of bags of teacher supplies that were donated by members of our church because of our partnership with our local elementary school, Margaret Wills Elementary. I moved all those supplies down to a room in our church where hundreds of dollars worth of school supplies will be reorganized by a women's missions group that evening, packaged into teacher supply bags that will help equip teachers to serve a school in need in our city. In addition to the hundred or so backpacks which church members purchased and filled with school supplies for children who might need backpacks as this new school year begins. I walked down the hall and joined several gentlemen around a conference table as we are planning and preparing for the future of our auto ministry, a ministry which receives vehicles donated by church members and others in our community to our church, are repurposed, worked on, fixed, and then given out to people who need vehicles, life-changing transportation for work and education. In the next room over, I double-checked the setup for the SALT missions group that will meet in the evening and pray by name for missionaries all over the world before helping serve in our church family. This is just a small glimpse, a picture of a normal day in the family of God in this place because people have been compelled by their love for Jesus to serve and to love others by teaching English or giving away cars or collecting school supplies or loving teachers or serving students or praying for missionaries. It never stops because people have discovered what Hebrews 13, 16 knows also. That those who believe in Jesus cannot forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. The witness of God's people throughout history has again and again been that when we pay attention to Jesus, when we look to him as the guiding force of our lives, as the example, the pattern which we are to follow, we become people who do likewise, who put others' needs before our own, who serve to no end, and who love like Jesus loved. It's a story that echoes through every hall of our campus and in the lives of some of the great saints that have served in our church and continues to inspire me and hopefully you. And perhaps this is what Hebrews 11 means when it talks about the body of faith as a cloud of witnesses. And when we grow weary of doing good, we can look around to our left and our right and find in the family of faith others who are still running at a runner's pace and we're called and compelled to catch up and to give our attention to what's worth our attention. And the writer continues in verse 17 saying, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden for that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us, he writes in verse 18. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. It's one of those themes that we get in the New Testament letters, just like Paul's letters. There's a desire for the people to be reunited with their leadership, that they may be restored to one another. And he asks them to pray not just for themselves, but also for their leaders, for those who lead them, because this is beneficial to the body, that each person has its function, each person serves one another. Bringing us 
Now at last to this final closing benediction given to this letter to the Hebrews in verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact I have written to you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. And so a stamp of closing is placed on this letter, pointing us back to the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought Jesus back from the dead, the great shepherd, and asks and prays that he would equip these people with everything good for doing his will. It's the fruit. This whole last chapter is the fruit of a life which pays attention to Jesus. What we find at the end of this letter are instructions for giving him our focus and our aim. N.T. Wright says that if we get our picture of Jesus right, the huge issues in the other verses will begin to fall into place. The practical life of the Christian community has to be ordered in such a way that generosity and love, the love that reflects and continues to embody God's own love, will be central features of our life. The family has to continue to care for one another in practical ways, and that mutual affection for each other is vital. Financial help for those in need is crucial to the body. Hospitality that so marked the early Christian community will be extended whenever possible with the, the fascinating promise that in opening up your door, you never know when an angel is going to walk in. It happened to Abraham in Genesis 18. It can happen to you. They're reminded of those amongst them who have gone into prison and the freedom that they enjoy while others suffer. All of these are meant to point us to the things which can enslave us, which can become idols, which we can fashion into something to worship or sacrifice to ourselves instead of God. Money, sex, power, even suffering. And we're learning again and again about the faith of the earliest Christian leaders. A faith which must be now imitated, as it says in verse 7, by us and by them. It might seem, if you read it on its own or out of context or, or disconnected from the rest of this letter, that we're just getting a bunch of good ideas thrown at us. But taken together and taken as a whole, and as we've seen throughout this letter again and again, the writer is placing before us, placing in our vision and in our gaze, the person and work of Jesus. The one who in giving himself and sacrificing his own life through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave now offers salvation to all who would believe in him. And that salvation is not just freedom for eternity, but freedom even today from the things which draw your attention. The things which demand of your time, the things which promise that they ought to be a priority in your life. There are no shortage of forces pulling for your attention. But there is only one that gives life. There's only one that brings wholeness out of brokenness. There's only one that offers salvation. And who are we, Hebrews asks, 
if we were to ignore so great a salvation, who are we? If we were to give our attention and our energy and our focus and our priorities to something other than God himself as we have met him in Jesus. Let this be our aim. Let this be our purpose. Let this be who we are as a people. That we are those who pay attention to Jesus. And as we live in awe of who he is, we make Hebrews 13, 15 our life story that we would continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that openly profess his name. May your eyes be fixed on the only one worthy of your attention. And may the world be changed as it sees you living in his way. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We pray that our lives would be built on this foundation, our eyes fixed on you, our lives lived in your pattern. In Jesus' name, amen.